With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. HN Podcast with Miller and Dace on the other side of the uh, 4th of July Independence Day celebration. Steve, are are you familiar with the movie um, uh, The Sandlot? Of course. Um, My daughter, my 8-year-old daughter, Mary, and maybe this is bad parenting, I don't know, but... I introduced that to her this weekend, realized there was one bad word in it, and I, I probably should be alarmed at how many of the, uh, how much of the potty humor she both understood and laughed so incredibly hard at. And you don't teach kids that poop and fart and all that's funny, or that when they're zooming in on, you know, Wendy Peppercorn's uh, rear end, that that's uh, what that is. But anyway, I digress quite a bit. But we, um, you know, that. That movie didn't come out when you and I were kids. It came out kind of when we were in our early 20s or so, somewhere along mm-hmm. those lines. But mm-hmm. i got to tell you, whenever I watch that movie, every time I watch it, I think back to when I was a little kid. And to me, it, it's probably one of my favorite nostalgia-inducing movies ever. It, it, it just continues to hold up as a phenomenal movie. It's a fun movie. Yeah, you know, I... I got to tell you, right about now for me, like everything is nostalgic. We just sent Zoe off to summer camp for a week for the first time. And Anna's driving, you know, and, um, uh, you know, it's just uh, right now I'm at that phase where I feel like uh, it's, it's almost over. And I and and I'm concerned about it. And then at the same time, I'm like, you know, looking back, you know, did I waste moments, things of that nature, you know? So I'm kind of at that phase right now. Mm-hmm. So pretty much everything is nostalgic to me right now. So you like got cats in the cradle on repeat going on in your Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we uh, we all have Amazon Music accounts here in our house which yeah. i would highly recommend by the way for people that don't have it it's a phenomenal app and um i i just cannot believe how much of my music anna knows listens to voluntarily on her own and uh, i mean you know i mean she's got plenty of stuff in there that's contemporary i don't know much about but you are I mean, she is just as likely as as I am to go from Dexy's Midnight Runners to the Beatles in a song set, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those reminders that we cannot use enough of, of how much influence with our kids we really have, even when we don't think um, we're having much or they don't let on that we do. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, so, no doubt. When, when our kids were little, I had so many of our friends who were older that we went to church with or I ran into circles with because of what I do for a living, whose kids were about out of the house or were grown. And, like, it goes by fast. And at that point, you're thinking, yeah, whatever, you know. But it goes by fast. 
they were exactly right. It goes by fast. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had my kids listening to like Bruce Springsteen, Guns N' Roses, forever. Um, and tonight, it's funny. On the way home, we went and watched Despicable Me three. Me and my girls. On the way home, I said, "Hey, I'm going to play my uh, Queen playlist. I have I've got like thirty of Queen's best songs, or at least my favorite songs from Queen, and I love Queen." And um, so I'm going through. I'm playing kind of the beginning of as many as I can. I skipped, you know, Fat Bottom Girls uh, for obvious reasons. <laughs> but um, it was it, it, they. They each knew, and Mary's eight and Grace is fourteen. They knew well over half of them, and Mary knew some that I was surprised that she knew. And then Under Pressure came on, and my daughter Grace looked at me. And she's like, "This is a Queen song." I'm like, well, you know, if it's Freddie and David Bowie, she's like, "Who's David Bowie?" So then I turn over, I type in. Um, to, um, oh, what's the, what's the big Bowie song? Um, Let's dance. So I type in "Let's dance" and I start playing that. You know, when it gets to the you know the first fifteen twenty seconds of it, I'm like, I'm like, what do you think of it? Um, I'm like, is it cool? She's like, eh, it's kind of it kind of sounds old. I'm like, yeah, it sounds old, but it's still cool, right? And she's like, yeah, kind of like you. And I just kind of looked at her <laughs> and busted out laughing. I'm like, well played, kid. Well played. So yeah, it, it's uh, it's a fun ride for sure. Um, let's talk some college football as we continue our countdown. Are we sub fifty days now, or in that we range? are forty eight days until games that count in the standings take place. Forty eight days. You know, you are sort of SEC media days are Monday tomorrow. That's pre- that's ridiculous. Uh, Iowa's football media days August fifth, Big Ten somewhere around the July twenty fourth or twenty fifth somewhere in there. It's uh, both those days. Yeah, so I, I nailed that. Um, I was, what was I going to say? Oh, you're you're kind of my go to friend who I call when I'm trying to get an opinion that I need somebody who's in touch with their emotions. Um, you know, kind of has that quirky designer mystique to them. That's what I think of you when I need opinions on things like this, because you are the uniforms are. Um, mm-hmm. You're the go-to uniform guy. I'm not self-appointed, sh- of course. Yes. Yeah, but it works for me. Uh, I don't know. Have you seen any of the things that I've sent out or others have sent out on the um, Iowa's new turf with the Tiger Hawk logo at midfield? Have you seen? Have you seen that? I have. I have only been advocating for this. Since I was on KXNO doing a solo show, which has been more than a decade now, yeah, it's so, a yes. long time. Yeah. What, what 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 do you what do you think of how it looks? Not not like the you know the video of the you know the cartoon, but the actual screenshots last week as they laid the tiger hawk down. How do you think it looks? I like it a lot, but it's not precisely what I envisioned. But it's it's an upgrade. Um, I like it a lot. Um, it's, I, I kind of, when I first saw it, I, I almost got the feeling of this is this is the one they had that that, and I say this um, chuckling now because we are the, we are the, we're getting to be older now. Okay, so I say this with um, uh, with respect and um, and humor. Because right now there's this big rumor that Michigan's going to have alternative uniforms, and I hate to be that guy, but for what, for a home game this year, but everybody's been emailing me. What do you think? I'm like, I don't, don't don't touch the, I'm I'm get off my lawn guy now, you know. Don't don't touch the home uniform. It's a yeah. classic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so this strikes me as the Tiger Hawk that Ference was willing to sign off. Yes, 
Okay. Yes. And I say it with I say it <laughs> acknowledging I am now becoming get off my lawn. I'm I'm becoming Grand Torino, right? Okay, yeah. I'm becoming that guy. Feels good. So 10, 15 years ago, I would have said it with disdain. Now I say it with a certain amount of reverence. <laughs> so it, it's an up, it's it's good. It's an upgrade over a plain midfield. It's not exactly what I had in mind when I started advocating this back in 04, 05. But um, it's an upgrade. It's good. It, I mean, my, for people that don't know, I mean, my concept has always been for Iowa, which has one of the best logos in college sports, and to go to have that midfield with the have a Tiger Hawk similar to the Eye of the Tiger LSU has at midfield of, of, of Death Valley, okay, which is that is just such a sweet, sweet look. This isn't that, but it is definitely better than having nothing. It, it's almost like it, it's like Ferenc, it's like Ferenc said to everybody under 50 in the in the marketing department I'll meet you halfway that's yes kind of what, that's kind of what it struck me as yeah but you know on, onto the the Grand Torino guy you know I I like it I'm because I'm becoming that guy too and, and those of you listening to this podcast right now many of you are nodding your heads this that guy even you know pissed on uh, parades and fireworks last week uh, in the podcast but um I kind of like being that guy, and you know, it's 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 not a secret. It's it's a fact that somewhere around your mid forties through your mid fifties are your highest, on average, for your highest income earning years of your life. And yeah, you've accumulated a lot of experience, and that experience typically translates into upward mobility up the corporate ladder, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in, in my field, in, in sales, I really think there's a huge value to be placed on the I don't give a damn attitude. Not like you don't care about your job. You do. You just don't get caught up in what people think. Mm-hmm. You no longer care about when you make a cold call. You're not nervous. There's no, there's no objection they're going to throw at you that you can't overcome. Yeah. And if they don't want to buy from you, so what? Somebody else is going to. There's so much power in that. And and to me, it's a part of that whole Grand Torino guy mentality. I just mm-hmm. don't care if you tell me no because I got 70 people that tell me, yes, I'm great at my job and somebody else is going to buy from me. So that I think is so true. There's a lot I mean, of value in that. When I when I used to own Cyclonation, I remember I you know it dawned on me when they gave me that when Scout gave me that franchise, um, it was the Insiders back then, and when uh, Heckman gave me that franchise on your recommendation, I thought this was really cool. And then it dawned on me, hey, somebody's got to produce all this content. You know, I can produce some of it, but you know, I got to do an afternoon radio show every day. I can't be up in Ames at practice every day and everything else and you know the old cycle and illustrated was falling apart and i knew bill seal so i'm like well why don't i bring him over and he's like yeah and then it dawned on me well wait he's probably not going to do this for free right you know so someone's got to pay him and you know i i who knows what i paid bill back then but you know 25 30 grand a year and yeah it was you know so i had to come up with that three grand a month in advertising and i'd never asked anybody for money ever and man, I just would sweat it out, dread it. You know, it was it was it was by far the most stressful thing in my life 
more than having a child doing a daily <laughs> show was trying to come up with that three grand or whatever it was in a, a month in advertising I needed in order to pay for uh, Bill's salary and our expenses. And I fast forward now with what I do now, and I have I have literally walked into rooms and straight up asked people for hundreds of thousands of dollars right to their face. And I don't even care now. I just, I don't even care. I, I, I don't care what the answer is. I don't care about asking. I will literally ask anybody now for literally anything. I don't care when, when you know, 10, 12, 13 years ago, O2 is when they gave me Cyclonation, so that's 15 years ago now. You know, I, I mean, dude, I was, I was a walk-in sauna. I was sweating, walking into the old, what was that old sports store that was really cool in, on Merle Hay that was half Hawkeyes, half Cyclones? Yeah, I, rem- I remember that guy, yeah. yeah. I'm walking into that guy's pad, you know, with a proposal to get like 1500 a month from him. Going through meetings at Prairie Meadows to get them to buy the back cover of the magazine, and dude, I mean, I was I was a freaking right guard commercial walking into those meetings. Okay, now I'm like, I'll jump on a plane, go down to Texas, ask billionaires for like a half a million. I don't even care. That's that's what you're talking about. But 15 years ago, it literally kept me up at night asking somebody for 1,500 bucks a month. I mean, I just I couldn't handle it. And it's difficult. If somebody came to me, okay, John, that's awesome. I'm 30. How, how do I how do I get that attitude? I don't even know. I don't think you do. I don't, I don't think I can explain it. Like, Eventually, it just it got to the point where the daily needs I had to pay my bills, um, I just became much more aware of them, um, or what I perceived to be my own value than I was my fear. And that eventually won out. Yeah, I know? think I think I think I think when you have that back against the wall, sink or swim moment, which yes. a lot of a lot of us get to, maybe not just once, twice, or three times, but a number of times, depending on your risk tolerance. Um, I think once you have that all in moment, there's like a little switch or a wire trips in your head that's like, okay, the safety yeah. the safety's off now. I think every guy can get to the point where the safety's off. Not every guy can get to the point where they're born with the safety off. Those guys become like Donald Trump. Okay. Warren Buffett, billionaires. Okay. Right. The the guys who are born with the safety off, we know we know who they are. Jeff Bezos, you know, we just name those guys. But I think every guy can eventually get to the point that the safety is off when when they when they reach the moment that you just described and sometimes that happens to you when you're 28 sometimes you're 38 sometimes when you're 48 but eventually you get to the point when you realize um it's fight or flight man and i'm not going anywhere so i guess we better win the fight yeah or 42 and you get back into propane and it works out all right let's you know what folks right there all that that was free you're welcome moving on Let's go to Steve's uh, 2017 coaching hot board as we get into the sub-50 days till college football season begins. And Steve has this as a ranking of the top coaches in the sport, Power 5 plus Notre Dame, based on a combination of overall achievement and current trajectory of the program. Do you want to, like, you know, fill that out anymore? You know, tell me what overall achievement in the field of excellence is and current trajectory. Overall achievement would be their total resume up until this point. And then trajectory would be their current trend line as a coach. Okay. Very good. So, Um, so in general, I, I favor more 
the resume, and when it's and then when it's close, um, you know when I and, and the reason these rankings are important is because I, I think I, I started I we started this last year in my preview. You know I always start with that those sort of sets of power ratings. I used to do that like Phil Steele does and and use those power ratings to go through everybody's schedules and project the season. Well, I added a new analytic last year, and it's these coaching ratings. And if you're if you if you have what I what I rank as an elite level coach, then when I when when my power ratings I get to a game on the schedule, my power ratings say it's basically a toss up. This becomes one of the key tiebreakers in determining how I project out the season. And you know I'm a big believer in showing my work, so that's why I include it in my preview so people can see how I value coaches because I think right now. The, 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 the coaching quarterback and defensive line I can pretty much tell you who's going to play for the national championship every year on those three factors in college football right now by themselves regardless of how strong or not you are at every other position if you don't have those three things chances are you either are having a you know once in a millennial millennium season for your school or you're not playing for the national championship. That's pretty good. Hey, how many sets of power rankings do you have? Um, I only do one. That's garbage. That's that's, that's garbage. <laughs> Phil Steele has nine, bro. I know he gets paid more than me. Suck I only have up. one. But w- what I do similar to Steele is I pre- is I go through and project seasons out a lot. So I don't just like one time at the end of May when the magazines come out, write everybody's records down. I'll go through this three or four times, especially when I see trap games, things of that nature. Um, you know, So I'll, I'll go through it, and then I'll see in my mind what scenario I came out most more often than any other, and those will be my final predictions. If, if I would have only known you have one set of power rankings, I, I might have called Phil tonight. But we'll muddle through this. I mean, gee, many Christmas, man. Why don't you do something with your free time? I know. I know. I, well, you know, I can't hold his jock strap, Larry Holmes. I think we all know that. So. <laughs> that That's always made me just laugh out loud. When I, you know, in his article, I don't know how many times. Phil Steele is a, I'm a self-promoter. You know, when you build your own business and in, in multiple, you have to be. I mean, because for a while, no one's going to blow your horn. So you got to do it yourself. Phil Steele, though, bro, dude is a self-glosser. He references himself thousands of times in each magazine, and I don't know how many different times he references I have in my nine sets of power rankings. I tip my cap to him because you know I love Well, and it gives him an out, you know. Well, in three of my power rankings, I have this team going undefeated. Yeah, exactly. But I only rank them 15th in the preseason, so at the end of the year when they go undefeated, they say, well, three of my power ratings had them going undefeated. I mean, it's a dude. That's a hell of a system if you can come up with it. I you agree. know what I'm saying? I agree, and that's. I'm, I'm interested in seeing how your roster foundation works out because if it works out well, Phil might have ten sets of power rankings next year. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, I love Phil. I think we both do. Work. Yeah, we both love yeah, him. He's- I love guys like him and Mel Kiper and those guys who essentially are fans who made themselves cottage industries. In, in 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 you know in a pursuit that we love, how can you not love that guy? You it's, know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, it, it's the Phil, only, if you're listening, we're just busting your balls. That's man. right. Nothing but respect. It's the only magazine I still buy. The only one. I lean on you to buy the others, and you can uh, ten <laughs> ten ninety nine those. Um, okay, power rankings, coaches. Nick Saban number one. 
You say the closest thing to Bear Bryant since Bear Bryant. Very difficult to argue that. And I've given it some thought with regards to Saban because I don't like Nick Saban. I think he's a top-shelf a-hole, frankly. And I've been in the same press conference room that he's been in where I've seen him throw a player under the bus, um, you know, after the Capital One Bowl, you know, he said the guy basically blew the coverage, and Nick Saban was leaving that press conference to go make, you know, at that point in time, bajillions of dollars coaching the Miami Dolphins. I just can't, I can't stand, I haven't been able to stand the guy ever since. That said, putting aside personal biases, uh, what he's done at Alabama, and you can say, yeah, it's Alabama, but you know what? It wasn't Alabama before Nick Saban took the job. They were 10, 12, 13 years. Um, well, more than that since their previous national championship under Gene Stallings, which was tainted uh, post de facto. Nick Saban is, he has it rolling right now in the era of 85 scholarships, unlike anyone before him, greater than Pete Carroll. He is unequivocally number one. I don't think there's any debate. And, you know, Bear, he's, he's not the cultural icon Bear Bryant was, but. You know, the SEC wasn't the wasn't the conference that it has has been under Saban either. Keep in mind, Saban has done this in an era where the SEC at one point won eight straight national championships as a conference. Right. Okay. So this isn't Bo Woody, you know, Big Two, Little Eight. This isn't Nebraska and Oklahoma essentially have a. A, a one-game season every year, un- unless it's one of those years that Colorado and Oklahoma State's really good, then they each have a two-game season. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is—he has done this during what has been arguably the most dominant run by a conference in the history of this sport. And and of those eight straight teams and from their league that won the national championship in this era at one point, keep in mind we went through a stretch where 2009 Alabama. 2010 Auburn, 2011, 2012 Alabama, 2013 Auburn makes it to the BCS National Championship game. I mean, Auburn was playing for national championships, not just, so it wasn't even just his own conference, but one of the other dominant teams in his conference was was in his own state. Consider that. So I, I think this is unparalleled, unlike anything we've ever seen before and I and I I would I don't think we'll ever see anything like this ever again. I would agree. You say he's not the cultural icon that the bear was. You know, obviously we live in times where everybody's exposed. We're overexposed. I mean, Nick Saban's face is probably on Sports Center at least two times a week, if not three, even in the summer. So everyone's recognizable. Uh, and given all the different types of media we have, it creates this the sociological level of knowing that really doesn't exist, but you think that exists. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're able to hear, watch, and read every single word that Nick Saban says at every single press con- conference during his entire era. So there's this knowing factor that didn't exist in the Bear Bryant era. For Bear, Bear Bryant was nationally known, nationally renowned, strictly from A, success, B, very few TV exposures back in those days, but C, from the writers that wrote about him at that time. And the writing that was done then is far different than it is now. They painted word pictures so eloquently and colorfully back then that created this mythical, legendary status 
for these figures, you know, from, you know, the, the advent of organized sports in the United States all the way up until probably the dawn of social media 10 to 15 years ago or really the pervasiveness of it. So I don't know that anybody could ever live up to the specter and mythological status of Bear Bryant and those that came before him ever again just because we have that familiarity with them. Yeah, I think to become a cultural icon – and now, because of social media and the way we operate now as a culture, I think you do have to have that Dabo Swinney, um, Jim Harbaugh uh, shtick. You must have some kind of shtick uh, to, to go viral. Um, when your resume alone won't do it. I mean, Urban Meyer, who's next on my list, may be the only person in college football history to have at one point in his career been the most dominant coach in the SEC and the Big Ten. He's not a cultural icon. Um you know, those guys don't have those personalities. Bear had everything. Bear had the organization. A lot of what we do in college football today from an organizational standpoint, the first time we really started in the modern era establishing a coaching tree, two guys that really set the trend with that. Woody Hayes was the one here in the Midwest. Um, Lou Holtz, Bo Schembechler, just a few names that came out of his tree. And, and Bear Bryant was the one in the, in the South. So he had, the, he had that, that, the coaching acumen that Saban's brought to the table from, a, from an organizational standpoint. Um, reinvented himself from an X's and O's standpoint several times. Um, similar to, again, what Saban has done. Uh, Saban's run 3-4 defenses, 4-3 off defenses. He's run spread, RPOs. He's run pro-style. Um, he's reinvented himself on both sides of the football. Um, you know, Bear Bryant was one of the early advocates of the old wishbone, similar to Urban Meyer being one of the early advocates of the spread. Um, but but Bear also had a shtick, the fedora hat, the jacket, the cigarettes. That's the Marlboro Man, the guy who the guy who got up one day in the late '60s and got sick of segregation in his own state. Took on it took on took on George Wallace in his own state when he scheduled USC to come in play him play a home and home in 1970, knowing USC with with Sam Bam Cunningham and the team they had would kick their ass on national television. Walking into their locker room afterwards, even though. They're dropping racial bombs at USC's players as they come off the field. And he walks into their locker room afterwards and thanks them for coming there and kicking their ass because that's when he needed to show the state of Alabama in order to desegregate the SEC. That, see, he had the full package. That, we, that, that you know, the only, Sweeney's getting closer. If he wins another national championship, then I think you can say he's got that whole package as well. Saban and Meyer will just never have that personality. No. If Harbaugh wins a couple of national championships, you could say he has that package. But Bryant had that package. And in a day and age where he didn't have ESPN and, and those sorts of things, it was very difficult for sports figures to become transcendent unless they got political, like Muhammad Ali, for example. He did it just on the basis of... Of the of the shadow he cast on the sidelines in an era where you it was hard to get noticed transcendently culturally in sports and he managed to do that. That being said, Saban's body of work, in my view, it's at least on it's at least on par with that. And I don't think it, it, one more national championship. I don't think there's any question it would eclipse it. Well, yeah, and, and there just there weren't the scholarship limits back in those days. I mean, they had. 
they had phenomenal phenomenal athletes as man 125 in the roster so you mentioned Saban at one Urban Meyer two you've talked about Dabo Swinney at Clemson you have him at number three he's the only there's only this is the first time I think in modern college football history we've only have we only have four active coaches that have won national championships so to me those four guys have got to be your top four coaches well Dabo Swinney is the only one that's beaten the other three so that's why I put him ahead of Jimbo Fisher but frankly you want to you want to go with this order of coaches in any order you'll get no argument out of me yeah. the arguments probably begin after this elite tier how you would rank them from there you mentioned Jimbo Fisher uh, at number four you write uh, poised to lead the Seminoles for their seventh straight major bowl game this season so those four the only four active with a national championship so at number five is where you say you believe the debate begins and i think that we probably will begin it um you have jim harbaugh yeah i've got well then then i think the next year i've got harbaugh shaw bill snyder chris peterson at washington and to me i think that's your next four um if you look at their total body of work and their current trend line that's the next four. And, again, I don't really mind what order. Like, Athlons has Harbaugh number three. I think that's too high. If you think Harbaugh at five is too high, then you're probably not counting his NFL success. And I'm okay with that. I think this is an entirely subjective exercise. So I'm more interested in which tiers you have per people than necessarily which order. Um, so, I, to me, I don't think there's any debate that those are the next four. You could probably debate what the order would be. Harbaugh, Shaw, Snyder, Peterson. You think Peterson's a little too high? I think you have to look at, you know, you always wonder when you get the guy from the mid from the mid major power. Um, am I getting Thad Mata? Who maybe that's a bad example because he just got ran out of Ohio State, but he has he, Thad Mata has one of the greatest coaching resumes in Big Ten basketball history. So am I getting Thad Mata from Butler, or am I getting? Um, you know, the guy who went Nick at night at Iowa. Okay. Uh, that, you know that, what? That's, I, I'm not even going to say his name. Yeah, that's why I didn't want to say it. So that's that's what you're wondering, okay? So Chris Peterson didn't build Boise State originally. Dirk Cutter, who's now the coach of the Buccaneers, did. But he's the guy that came after him and took them to a whole different level. But that program was successful before he got there, and it's been successful since he's left. So he needs he needed another another um, piece of evidence to show what he could do. Listen, you know, within the last decade, Washington had an 0-12 season. Last year, they went to the champ. They went to the the, the uh, college football playoffs. So, to me, when now that clarifies and and I think puts into more focus and more emphasis his Boise State body of work because now it's not just well, you know, he just kind of picked up the pieces of a mid-major that was already built before he got there. Now you can truly, I see, based on what he's done at Washington, what he can do. That's very good support for that right there. I, I was about ready to just keep arguing with you on it, but I will, the defense rests. Um, number nine, Mr. Mullet, Mike Gundy, Oklahoma State. I was a little surprised by that. You know what, I was too when I started putting these together. But, but as we go down the line right now, when you look at their trend line and their body of work, Tell me definitively in the next five or six coaches who you think for sure should be ahead of him. Well, sure. No, I, I get that. I, I was just in, 
my thought is I, I was surprised that he's up in that strata. But, you know, as you mentioned, three 10-win seasons in the past four years. When did he start there, 05 or 06? Right around there. And the last time we've seen Oklahoma State be a consistent – Les Miles kind of rebuilt that program. That's how I got the LSU job. And they upset Oklahoma a couple times, but he never had them ranked in the top five or ten like Gundy's had several times. you got to go back to when Jimmy Johnson was at Oklahoma State. You know, the Thurman Thomas, Dexter Manley days – and then, you know, Pat Jones took over for him, and they ended up getting on probation at following the Barry Sanders era. So we're going back mid to late 80s now, and Jimmy Johnson was there in the early 80s. We're going back almost a quarter century was the last time you saw Oklahoma State be this consistently competitive on a national level. You know, 2005 is when he started, and since then, um, Oklahoma State has the 15th best winning percentage of Power Five. I mean, I don't count Boise State of Power Five teams. Um, they have the same winning percentage, uh, or rather, the same number of wins as Texas during that time. They're mm. 104 and 50. It's a 67 percent winning percentage. Uh, a higher winning percentage, uh, more wins than Auburn, um, Utah, more wins than Nebraska, more wins than Michigan State, more wins than Notre Dame, more wins than Michigan, Iowa. Mm. Uh, so the list goes on and on. So, yeah, I think that that wasn't uh, a bad poll at all. Uh, number 10, Kyle Whittingham of Utah. T- talk to me about Kyle a little bit. Defend him being this high. I look, What I love about Kyle Whittingham is, well, he's had, to under, he's had to do two difficult things in his coaching career. Two things they tell you, by the way, you don't want to have to do. One, he had to follow the guy. Right, So he takes over. He was Urban Meyer's defensive coordinator. He takes over for him when he leaves and goes to Florida. So right away, and Urban Meyer walked out the door with the number one pick in the draft, and they went undefeated. So right away, the expectations are insane that he's got to inherit. Then in the middle of that arrangement, he goes ahead and stabilizes the program, and they're still competitive um, at that level. They, they come to him and say, oh, by the way, we're not going to put you in a Power 5 league. And you don't really have a local recruiting base because you're not even in the state of Utah. Who knows how many good players that produces. But you're not even the biggest brand in your own state because BYU is a national program in a heavily Mormon state. So you've got a lot of Mormon kids, too, but you're the public university. We're the Mormon university. We're the actual Mormon university. So you're trying to build on on top of that at the same time. And, you know, he is a guy that, that, you know, they play a physical style of football. They're not a gimmicky team at all. Uh, they, I think every one of their offensive linemen were drafted in April. And, and then a sixth one that was injured this year but played two years ago was drafted. In fact, do you know next to Michigan how many guys, uh, what, what school will be number two in most players uh, from its 2016 team uh, on an NFL training camp roster here in a few weeks is? It's Utah. It's Michigan and Utah. When you count uh, undrafted free agents and guys drafted, those are the two schools with the most players from their 2016 rosters that are going to be on NFL training camp teams or or on uh, NFL training camp rosters here when the camps open up in a couple of weeks. That's crazy. And so he's managed to he's managed to crush two paradigms. They tell you never to sign up for as a coach. And. I think he's like undefeated in bowl games too, like eight. No, nine and oh or nine and one, something like that. So. That's why I put him there, because I think he's the most underrated coach in the country. But, again, if you think he ought to be at 15 or 16, I'm okay with that, too. 
You've got Mark Rick Richt uh, next, who's now at Miami, and he has been at Miami for one year. Seems pretty high, but I just went and pulled the uh, winning percentage numbers from 2001 to 2015, which would be the Richt era at Georgia. Because when I think of Mark Richt, I think of disappointment. I think of high expectations but unmet expectations. Yeah. And then I go and look at the winning percentage of his 14-year tenure or 15-year tenure at Georgia. And if I throw out Boise State, uh, you know, and Texas Christians number five, and they weren't, you know, power five the whole time, they'd be number seven as far as winning percentage in all football. That's not too bad. No. And if you look over the course of Rick's career at Georgia – over the course of that of, of, of those years, he's literally like three plays away from appearing in multiple national championship games. And he just sometimes the timing's just not good. And he just happened to come along at a time that Nick Saban was there. And even if Nick Saban if Nick Saban was even just Gene Stallings who was a very good coach at Alabama, won a national championship. Even if Nick Saban was just a basic Hall of Fame coach, Mark Rick's resume probably would be more impressive because he would have had two or three of those breaks from the, that he didn't get in those other years go his way. He just happened to be there at a time where it just, you were, you just, it just couldn't happen. He just could not. Uh, and not to mention, really, Saban built both programs in the SEC – that were dominant during this era because he's the one that built the LSU program that Les Miles originally inherited too. So the timing there for him, just not good. But I'm telling you right now, the way he's recruiting, um, and he's in the right division. He's in essentially the Big Ten West of the ACC. I I could see him just dominating that division in the next four, five, six years. All right. um, 12, Gary Patterson. 13, Bobby Petrino at Louisville. 14, Kirk Ferentz, Iowa, who is now the longest-tenured coach at one school in the sport. And 15, Pat Fitzgerald of Northwestern. Yeah, I think, it get, as you can see now with these names, with well, Patterson Fer- and Ferentz and Petrino are guys who in several years we would have done this in the past would have been in the top ten. Okay? But when we're putting Pat Fitzgerald at 15 and Dan Mullen at 16 – now you can see we're projecting a little bit because of how because of why because of what you just said. Kirk Ferentz is the longest tenured coach in college football. All right, I, I you know the amount of coaching turnover there's been in the SEC the last few years has been incredible, and so now now we are really getting subjective. Now we are really projecting things um, because of how much turnover there's been. But here, so this is a bit of a man crush pick because you know I love me some Pat Fitzgerald, okay? But this stat is crazy, John. Northwestern has posted only three 10 win seasons since 1901, okay? Pat Fitzgerald either played or coached for every single one of those teams. Hmm. Yeah. He does a good job, and Northwestern is not the. Um you know, Northwestern, Stanford, Notre Dame, schools that are going, you know, Duke, going to get the kids that are really good athletes, but also really smart. And uh, he's in a very good job. No question about it. 
The two names I got to ask you about before we go on to my poll. Brian Kelly, I have at 21. Mark D'Antonio, I have at 22. Last year, both these guys were in the top 10. In fact, last year, I think D'Antonio was, for me, number five. If I have, In your view, have I overreacted to the seasons each of them had last year? Um, trajectory is a part of what you did with this. Mm-hmm. D'Antonio, probably, I would have him higher than Kelly. Uh, because what I look at with Kelly and the material that they have, you know, whether or not it's the recruiting services, you know, overrating players that wind up going to Notre Dame just because they're still all in on the prestige of Notre Dame or not, we know that Brian Kelly is a good football coach by what we saw him do at Cincinnati. So Mark D'Antonio, six of seven years with eleven or more wins, was that what the run they just had? Yes. I mean, that's that's pretty insane. The dude built a phenomenal program. He's ballsy. He he makes the unpredictable call. So I, I think probably an overreaction for both of them. I, I there's there's you know I'd rather have them than Mike Leach, um, Dan Mullen, uh, Rick. Do- yeah. So I think a little bit, but I mean, really, when you're talking about your numbers, I don't know. Eight, nine, ten, on down to twenty-five. You're, you're really there's not a whole lot of gap in between these guys. It's very compressed, in my opinion. Yeah, and the amount of turnover makes it harder. And you know, it's one of those things. The reason I ask is because if I could do this over again, I'd probably put those guys higher. But you know, the dude code. I'm not changing my bracket after you, I've already yeah. you know turned Can't it in, it. right? Can't do it. So that's why I asked you about it because that obviously in poker we call that a tell. So I'm, I kind of forecasted to you. I'm not confident that I rated those correctly, but I wouldn't have them much higher than that. No, the, but, yeah, I, I but see But when that. you start looking at the rest of these names, I mean, look, I mean, I've got Tom Herman at 23, okay? Um, Paul Christ, who is essentially managing a program that was built 20 years before he got there, I've got at 26. Justin Fuente, who's been at Virginia Tech, I have at 27, you know, I mean, I've got Brett Bielema at 31, who, by the way, I found out has blocked me on Twitter, and I have no idea why. Um, Maybe he's a liberal. Or who knows what the reason is. But there are coaches that either are on the hot seat right now or were on the hot seat midway through last year. I've got ranked pretty high because of how, how, how much the coaching profession is in flux right now. Gus Malzahn, I've got 19. He's on the hot seat right now. James Franklin was on the hot seat midseason. Last year, I've got him at 18. Um, you look at Butch Jones at Tennessee. He's but he, he's definitely on the hot seat. But you know what? When you look at his record, he's one of only 12 Power 5 coaches that's won at least nine games or more the last two years. So you could argue me putting him at 30. If the, I've, I'm, I'm underrating him. But there's no question he's on the hot seat. Bielema, Kevin Sumlin, I've got 31 and 32. Both of those guys are clearly on the hot seat. Hugh Freeze, last year was the first year in his head coaching career that Mississippi didn't win more games than they won the year prior. He had improved their win total three years in a row. I've got him right now 34th. Clay Helton at USC. You know, he he caught lightning in a bottle with Sam Darnold. He's at 35. So this gives you an idea of – I'm guessing – as we finish this part of the podcast, 
we should go back a year from now when I put together my coaching list for next year because I think this year is going to clarify a lot of names on this list, okay? And I think we're going to see this list, except for the top four. I think it's. I think after we get past the top four, I think this list will be considerably different when we do this for 2018. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. And we'll see, uh, get an idea of what we did then at that point in time as far as moving people up more than you thought, moving them down more than you thought. And have that discussion. Let's move on to your, you know, for, uh, you know the um, uh, I wouldn't say the journalist in me because I've never considered myself a journalist. You know, I'm going to go Roy Firestone on you here for a second. How did it make you feel when you found out you'd been blocked by Brett Bielema? You know me. I don't really mind if I know why you don't like me because chances are it's a legit reason. Okay, and I'm at peace with that, frankly. Um, it does but, 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 really, but really, how did it make you feel? Well, I'm about to tell you. It does bother me when people don't like me for reasons I can't envision. When I, you know, if I've earned your disdain, I'm, I'll own that poop. I'm good with it. You know, it's part of my gig. I get that. That's, you know, that's that's a cost of doing business in in my line of work. But when I have no idea how, what I've done to offend you, then yeah, it kind of perplexes me a little bit. Like, what in the Sam Hill? could I have ever said about Brett Bielema that would cause him to block me? Let's, let's, let's call on Mr. Occam here. What, what's more likely, that, that Brett intentionally blocked you for something you said or that it was an accident or sometimes people that you follow that retweet people often who are maybe in a line of work or tweet about things that you just don't really care to read in your Twitter feed. Yep. If yep. you if you block that person, then it doesn't matter how many. Let's say like thirty people Brett followed followed you and were retweeting a lot of your political analysis on a regular basis. Just didn't basis. want to look at it. Yeah. Just didn't want to deal That's with it. That's a good point. Because I've I, you know I've muted a lot of people for that reason. You know. Yeah. Um, so it, because it gets in the way of the other stuff I want to read. Um, so I get that. I would like to hope, in fact, I hope it's that reason. I'm just going to tell you what I have found in my line of work, particularly the last few years, is the guys who claim to be the most outspoken, complain, compl- claim to be the most straight shooting, have the thinnest of skins, and are the biggest, meltiest snowflakes imaginable, cannot put up with any contrarian views whatsoever. So I, I, I hope Occam's option that you presented last is the right one but my spidey sense tells me it's it's the other it's the other i'm gonna find out between, i'd like to know between now you know, I'm, a Brett be- I'm a fan you know that i watched his re- i tried to get you to watch his reality show last year. not even watch it, it great. between okay. na- between now and and sometime before camp starts i'm going to uh i'm, I'm gonna get the word because I, I know some people and can contact some people on his present staff and i can find Good. out yeah, because you know he's got former Michigan guy Jeff Long as his AD. I think he'd be a great pick to succeed Ferentz here in a few years when he rides off into the sunset, come back to the Big Ten. You know, I'd love to see his ego now with Urban and J- and Franklin and Harbaugh and those guys all here. You know, um, and and PJ Fleck. I'd love to see Bielema and PJ Fleck, personality wise, dominate that division. You know, I'd like to see him come back here. I'm not. I'm a. I'm a Brett Bielema guy. I'm not anti Bielema at all. You know, he just had a baby yesterday. Well, his wife. I saw that. His well, wife, that's how his, I found out. 
Yeah. I, there, there's, there's a tweet in my timeline from Barrett Salee from Athlons who's congratulating Bielema on something. And I'm like, why does it say I'm, I, I can't view this tweet? You know, so I'm like, that's weird. So I clicked on the link. It says, you've been blocked. I'm like, what the heck? What, what the heck did I do to, be, to yeah. be blocked by this guy? Yeah. Let me clarify something real quick because Brett has put on a few LBs since his playing days. His wife had the baby. So seven pound, Ooh, eight ounce girl. That's cold blooded, bro. That's cold blooded. Well, Listen, people email me all the time about little small corrections. I felt like I needed to do it. Oh, that's cool. In this world that we live... Dude, if, if he was from Canada, who knows what they might put on the the birth certificate. You Not to mention the non-determinate gender aspect. Yeah, it's yeah. a you. I'm just... Uh, big Tent, HN Podcast. That's all it's about. Big Tent. Let's move to the top 25 now that we've you know discerned that. Uh, <laughs> This is based on how... Come for the college football, stay for the sales tips, and the gender stuff. <laughs> we aim to please. That's why That's why we've been in the basement for four years and running. Um, your top 50, if we get through 50, we probably won't, based on how you, Steve Dace, projects the regular season to finish, unlike... Other top 25 that say, here's our preseason poll, and then after one week, everybody just jumbles all over the place. This is an etched-in-stone top 25 that we set and leave it, set it and forget it. You'll have your week-to-week top 25, which isn't at odds with this. This is your end-of-season prediction. So if Mm -hmm. anybody wants to run smack at you, they can pick this one up and say, Dace, you were right, you were wrong. And this is the one that stands up as your record. And the week-to-week variations are more a reflection of how things are at that particular point in time. But this one is where you think they all end up. Correct. All right. Very good. When you give that answer, that means move on. Number one, or should we go to 25, work our way down to one? That might be better. You can do that. You want to start at 25 and work our way up? We can. Yeah, we'll do that, and then we'll uh, talk, and then we'll go back and fill in some other. Number 25, Toledo, the Rockets coming out of the MAC at number 25 for your poll. Well, I, I typically like at the very end of my top 25 to take a flyer on a group of five team that no one's talking about. Some years it works out for me. Last year it didn't. I had Marshall here, and they ended up having a losing season. But what I like about Toledo, Logan Whiteside led the nation in touchdown passes. He's back. Kareem Hunt was a great running back for them, but they're replacing him with a guy who's a former 1,000-yard rusher and another guy who's averaged eight yards a carry. So I think they'll be okay there. His top two receivers are back, and if you look at their schedule, other than a game at Miami, I think they're favored in the other 11 games. So that's why I like Toledo. Number 24, Notre Dame, 4-8 and eight last season, but uh, a bounce back of sorts. I think they will reverse that record. And you, you know this from your Phil Steeles. Three stats, three analytic stats, Phil Steele loves a lot. Number one is the turnovers, right? Turnovers equals turnaround. That's one that he likes. The other is he loves offensive line, returning offensive line starts, right? That's another big Phil Steele metric, right? right? That right. one. What's the third one? Close losses the year before. Right. Because that rarely happens two years in a row. You know, last year, Notre Dame lost six games by a touchdown or less. Four of those were by a field goal or less. Five times they lost a game in which they scored at least 28 points. So here's what that tells me. They just brought in Wake Forest defensive coordinator who did a great job there. They went to a bowl game primarily because their defense, their offense was terrible. If Notre Dame can essentially improve defensively by about one and a half to two possessions a game, they will reverse that record, okay? And I think they will. 
Number 23, NC State. Well, what did we say earlier in this podcast? If you have an elite coach, if you have a quarterback and a defensive line, you're playing for national championships. NC State has two of these. This will be with, you know, Nick, with, with, with Chubb and, and what they have coming back on the defensive front. This will be one of the best defensive lines in all of college football. Ryan Finley was on fire at the end of last year. Might have even outplayed the young man from North Carolina that was the number two pick in the draft the last month of the season. Ended up with over 3,000 yards passing, even though he didn't start the year as the starting quarterback. Now the question is, so both those, those things are back. Now the question is, what kind of coach is Dave Doran? Because, you know, they should have beaten Clemson last year. They were right there with Florida State last year. Um, can he? He's in that division with those teams. Can he get over the hump and beat those teams? Now we're going to find out. Moving on to number 22, Miami of Florida. I wonder if I have them too low, but because um, I like their roster everywhere except the most important position at quarterback. And they lost Brad Kaya. But when you look at Brad Kaya's numbers last year, eh, I mean, they were good. But you can't, you know, it's not like you're replacing elsewhere in this division Deshaun Watson, you know. So they, I may have them a little low, but I think that um, defensively, this is the closest they're going to, they've looked to the U teams, we recall, back in the day in quite a long time. They've got a couple of budding stars offensively, particularly Mark Walton at running back. The key is the quarterback. I think even if they just are okay at quarterback, they can still win that division and finish about here. If they're better than okay at quarterback, if they catch lightning in a bottle, then I think they could finish a lot higher than this. Up to 22, or we just had 22, number 21, Northwestern, with a nice finish you're seeing. Well, you look at Northwestern, Clayton Thorson took the next step at quarterback last year. You got a three-time thousand-yard rusher, and I look at their schedule. I don't see a, I don't see a game on their schedule that I think they can't win that one. No way. And I think they're a team that's going to be in a lot of 21-17, 24-21, 28-24 kind of games. And when you probably have the best package of players at the positions that will touch the ball more than any other, then I think you've got a pretty good shot of winning a lot of those kinds of games. And that's why I like Northwestern. Next up, at number 20, Louisville. You know, Bobby Petrino's never won fewer than eight games in his career. You know, yet they have Lamar Jackson, but not much else. The secondary's really good. Defensive front seven, though, gutted by graduation. A lot of his top weapons also gone. A lot is back on the offensive line, but, dude, they were, I mean, their offensive line needed a parental notification sticker last year. I mean, it was just down the stretch it was brutal so um, I, i'm i'm giving them the benefit of the doubt because of petrino's resume and the greatness of lamar jackson but i could see them finishing lower than this number 19 south florida that's a pretty good finish for them yeah i think they're by far the top group of five team you know charlie strong probably couldn't have picked a better spot to rehab his image uh, he was left a pretty full cupboard by willie taggart and you look at their schedule and you're struggling to find too many games that you think they're not at least a touchdown favorite in. Up to number 18, Kansas State could be the swan song for Snyder, according to your college uh, crystal ball. It is. This is the team, you know, I've, as I finish this, 
We'll get to the team I'm pretty confident I have overrated in a, in a few minutes. I'm pretty confident I have these guys too low. This looks like every contending team Bill Snyder has ever had. Um, I just have a lot of teams going 10-2 and two and 9-3 and three in my rankings, and this is one of them. And so it's kind of tough to split hairs and kind of guess where you think the playoff committee will rank teams. So I, I have them on the lower end of those 9-3 and three teams because their non-conference schedule is so weak. But I would not be shocked at all if they were in the Big 12 championship game at the end of the year. Number 17, the Wisconsin Badgers. I'm just playing a hunch here. I've talked about this the last few podcasts. I'm just playing a hunch that last year it turned out that gauntlet of a schedule wasn't as tough as we thought. That LSU wasn't as good as we thought. That win at Michigan State to start off the Big Ten season that looked so impressive turned out to not be as impressive as we thought. That, that the gauntlet was still impressive, but it wasn't, you know, running through the Iron Curtain in the late 70s either, okay? And, and I think we're looking at this year's schedule and looking at games, you know, against Iowa, at BYU, Minnesota, and we're just assuming they're a lot better than those teams. I, don't, I think they're better than those teams. I don't think, though, they're a lot better. So I thought we overrated last year's schedule in hindsight. And in foresight this year, I think we're underrating this year's schedule. Moving on to the next team in the list at number 16, the Stanford Cardinal. To me, you know, Stanford's interesting. They have a lot of guys back, man, a lot. But a lot of those guys, almost none of those guys have made huge impacts either. You know, so in fact, I'd, I'd say Wisconsin and Stanford are very similar. In that neither one of them lost all that much, but the guys they lost were all their big impact players from last year's team. So, you know, the question for them is at quarterback. Keller Christ really came on at the end of the year, but then he tore his knee in the in, in the bowl game. And so what's his status? Is he ready to go week one or not? Ryan Burns was not that good last year. That's why Keller Christ, you know, beat him out. K.J. Costello was one of the top high school quarterbacks in the nation a year ago, but do they really want to start a redshirt freshman with this experience of a team? To me, that's their big question mark heading into the fall. Moving on into the top 15 now at 15, LSU. This is the team I'm confident I have overrated. And I I put them here because my roster talent foundation says this is the number six roster in the country. And so when you have a roster this talented, how far down do you really rank them below their roster? But you know what, man? Their head coach has already failed once in this league. They're, again, their best quarterback, again, is a guy who wasn't good enough to play for Purdue. The schedule has nine from a year ago. Nine in 12 games. I'm pretty confident I have them ranked too high. I just, in my mind, I could not justify ranking them any lower because of what my talent formula says they have on the roster. Next up, at number 14... Oklahoma with a new coach. New coach. Three years removed from being the offensive coordinator at East Carolina. And now you're telling me he's just going to take right over and not skip a beat. So you're telling me Bob Stoops isn't that important. You can't tell me Bob Stoops is a Hall of Famer and then Oklahoma won't miss him at all. Both, both those things cannot be simultaneously true. They can both be simultaneously false. One can be true and the other false, but they can't both be true. And... I know everybody's really applauding him bringing in his old mentor, uh, Ruffin McNeil from East Carolina, to be his his associate head coach. Here's the problem with that, though. Ruffin McNeil's a defensive guy. 
You already have a defensive coordinator who, by the way, is the brother of the coach who just retired. You see where I'm going with this? I can right. see there being some problems there, brother. Okay? Big time. Mike Stoops, a Bob Stoops guy, Ruffin McNeil is, um, you know, he, he's, he's, he's the mentor of Lincoln Riley. So, I mean, I, I can see that being a problem. And when, you're, when you don't play good defense, and they don't, they haven't played good defense the last few years. When you don't play good defense, that makes your margin for error to be a championship contender a lot smaller. You know, and so just like we talked about a few minutes ago, if Notre Dame can improve defensively by about one and a half to two possessions this year, they can reverse their record. Well, if Oklahoma, if if they if they, if, if they decline by one and a half to two possessions a game defensively, that's the difference between going ten and two and eight and four, with the way that with where that with with where their defensive benchmark already was. And keep this in mind: as great of a coach as Bob Stoops was. He had not had a season since 2004 where he lost fewer than two games, John. Mm-hmm. Number 13, USC. People are going to balk at this, but you know I talked about this last week. Three times in the last decade, USC has been preseason top five or higher. Only once did they finish in the top 20. In the top 20, one year they finished in the top five. One year they were preseason number one and became the first ever preseason number one to lose six games. And another year they finished number 22. So we'll see. I like Sam Darnold a lot, but also keep in mind, he came on in the middle of the year, and now teams have had a full offseason to look at the film and break him down. He's got new receivers, offensive line, not really good. I like their defensive front seven. I think this is going to be USC's best defensive front seven in quite a while. I'm still not sold, though, on Clay Helton as a head coach. And the schedule, 12 straight weeks, no bye including a nine-game conference schedule, and your two non-conference games are Texas and Notre Dame. And and those might not be names that are as good as they've been in the past, but they're also names that aren't going to be intimidated by playing USC either. Next up on your top 12 now, here we are, Florida at 12. Gators, the only team in the SEC this decade that have not averaged 400 yards a game. That's crazy. I think they'll reverse that trend. But now they got to rebuild the defense. They lost eight defensive starters to the NFL. Um, so we'll see. The schedule, I think, you know, the Michigan-Florida game is interesting for both teams because whoever wins that game is probably going to start 6-7-0 and and be somewhere in the top five in the first college football playoff rankings. Um, so, it, you know, for Florida, other than that game, the rest of the schedule sets up pretty well for them. Now they get Tennessee at home. Georgia is, is that neutral site game. And they get Florida State at home at the end of the year. And the last two years, they've not scored an offensive touchdown against Florida State. So that sort of strikes you as a big revenge spot for a rivalry. So, you know, for Florida, it really comes down to can they develop a quarterback on the fly, whether it's Malik Sayer or Felipe Frakes, can they develop that guy to, to escape the Michigan game with a win? Similar to how Michigan's going to try to develop enough guys on defense to escape that Florida game with a win because the schedule for both of those teams sets up for whoever wins that game to really get off to a, high, a hot start uh, and have a lot of momentum heading into November. Um, number 11, Clemson. Did I just say that? You did. Okay. Hold I on. have Clemson hold. number 11. Now, Clemson, other than Alabama, I think they're the strongest team in the trenches on both sides in the country. But here's the problem. Deshaun Watson. 
Deshaun Watson's the best player the school has produced on either side of the ball in our lifetimes. A transcendent player. And even with him last year and with Mike Williams and with Artavia Scott and with Wayne Gallman, of their 12, win- of, 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 of their 12 games in the regular season, half of them that they won, they won by a touchdown or less with those guys. Okay? Um, I, I just no, – no, no, none of the quarterbacks returning um, or brought in, in Hunter Johnson's case, as a freshman early enrollee, None of them were impressive in the spring. And the early conference schedule, or the early schedule for them, man, they, they played both Auburn and Louisville on the road and Virginia Tech. I think they play all three of those teams in September. Hmm. So the schedule for Clemson, I think, is really tough. And it's and while I give Dabo Sweeney a lot of credit, he got he changed a vocabulary. Clemsoning's not a word anymore. You know? But um, they, this is also a team that has not been on this kind of pedestal as a program in 35 years since Homer Jordan, Danny Ford, and they shocked the country when they won the national title in 81. So I think they get off to a slow start. And then I think there'll be a team in November no one will want to play. And then I think there'll be a team next year that'll be right back in the national championship hunt again. Number 10, the Georgia Bulldogs. Well, this is a top five roster according to my four-year talent foundation. Um, Kirby Smart's first year was so similar to, to Saban's first year at Alabama when he went seven and five. So similar. The next year, Saban went twelve and two. And even the amount of guys Saban brought back from that team—it's just so eerily similar. So there's a game early in the year. Georgia goes on the road to Notre Dame. Even though I think Notre Dame will be improved, there might be five players for Notre Dame that would start for Georgia. There's a huge talent golf here between Georgia and Notre Dame. Georgia should win that game, even in South Bend. If they do, then I think that's a barometer. They're ready to finally take the next step again. If not, then I think you're going you're looking at another eight and four kind of season. Number nine, you have Michigan. Well, it comes down to the way they've recruited the last two years. You look at Harbaugh's resume as a coach uh, and what he's accomplished. Um, they do return a starting quarterback. I know a lot of people are like, well, how good is he? He led the Big Ten, for example, last year in third down completion percentage. So he was really good last year. Um, it just They have struggled to win games on the road against name opponents. This is going to be the youngest team in the Power Five. This is also going to be one of the best coaching staffs in the Power Five. I think they're a fascinating team. I think they're tough to grade. I, I, I've said all offseason, I think they're the most interesting team of them all. So I, I've seen I've seen them ranked anywhere from uh, top five in USA Today to around number 20. So when I put them at number nine, you know what that means? I'm splitting the difference, okay? I'm confident they'll be a 9-3, and 10-2 and two type of team. I am not confident, though, that I know where those two or three losses are going to come from. Because I could see them go on the road and win at Wisconsin, lose the week prior to Maryland because of the youth of the team. Uh, next up, on uh, number eight, you have Texas Longhorns, which is a yo. I think they're going to have a monster year. And I, I keep pointing out this stat. Average first-year improvement for a team with Tom Herman on their coaching staff, 4.3 wins. They got 16 starters back, including 10 on defense. By the way, last week, do you know who was rated the top quarterback at the Manning Passing Academy? 
Shane Bouchelle was. Came away with the best quarterback honors. So I look at their schedule. I, I The way it's setting up for them with, with, the, with Stoops' sudden retirement, I think they will have a massive turnaround in year one. Just as I said in Harbaugh's year one, Michigan would win at least nine games. Same thing for Texas. Number seven, Penn State. Most explosive offense they've had since 94. They still don't have that one guy in the defensive front seven. You know, there's no Courtney Brown, no LeVar Arrington, no guy that you when you walk up, you got to like, we got to double team that guy. They don't have that guy yet in their program. But offensively, and you look at their schedule, you know, outside of Ohio State and Michigan, you struggle to see any other game on that schedule where they just, with their offensive firepower, can't beat that team. What I do wonder about, though, these, none of these players have had preseason expectations because this is the highest they've got. They'll, they'll be a preseason top ten team. That'll be the first time that's happened since the Sandusky scandal. And, Jer, and, and James Franklin has never had a preseason top ten team. Both at Vanderbilt and when he took over at Penn State, he's thrived in that underdog role. So I am curious to see how the program will handle those expectations, John. Number six, Washington. When I look at Washington, other than the secondary, which was the best unit on their team, every other unit on their team, they return an All-American or All-Pac-12 caliber player. So I, I love the way the season sets up for Washington because everyone's talking about USC, and, and that helps Washington not deal with all these expectations after the way they – came out of nowhere last year where they were preseason number 14 and got to the playoff that that's such a huge benefit for chris peterson to not have to deal with these guys getting all these offseason accolades because everybody's handing the the pac-12 to usc so washington gets to have that chip on their shoulder for a second year in a row number five auburn i think jared stenham will be as impactful of a first-year player as there is in college football this year. When you look at Auburn last year, they finished second in the SEC last year, got to the Sugar Bowl, even though they were 120th in the nation in passing. Now you bring in a guy, Steve, why is so high on Jared Stidham? We saw this with Jeremy Johnson a couple years ago. No, you didn't. Jeremy Johnson had played a half of football that we all overreacted to. Jared Stidham played, started three games at Baylor when Seth Russell got hurt. Here were his stats. Nearly a 70% completion percentage, 12 touchdowns, and two interceptions. And before you tell me, well, yeah, it was Dinkin and Duncan throwing flanker screens and bubble screens to Corey Coleman, who took it to the house. You want to hear a stat that's going to blow you away? Average yards per completion in a Dinkin Dunk offense, okay? In a Dinkin, or, or I'm sorry, average yards per attempt. In a Dinkin Dunk offense, 11 Point seven yards an attempt. It's pretty Would good. That tell, that's that's elite. Anytime you're over ten yards, that's elite. But it's hard. But especially in that offense, because they do, do dink and dunk it so much, that tells you that he had the arm talent to get Art Bryles to extend routes, to extend the way they attack more horizontally. Instead, this now that now they're attacking vertically. Why does that matter? You look at the the backfield he returns. This was the best rushing team in the in the SEC last year. Petway and Johnson, their their dual threat tailbacks are both back. So what does that tell you? You pound those guys. 
play action with his arm talent. You go over the top, and now those plays you couldn't make last year, you're going to make now. Well, Stevie's not a runner in Gus Melzahn's offense. Well, they're changing that offense. They brought in uh, the offensive coordinator from Arizona State. They're going to run more of a balanced spread attack, a lot more, not as much zone read. I, I love Auburn's team, and a lot of their best guys on a, what was a real good defense last year are back. Um, if they were literally in any division other than the other than Alabama's, I'd pick them to be in the college football playoff. Number four, Florida State. We are up to the college football playoff right now, I'm assuming. I love everything about Florida State's team, but the offensive line and the schedule. I mean, the offensive line tried to get DeAndre Francois killed last year. Nearly did, in fact. And, and the schedule... Alabama, Clemson, and Florida are the, by far their three toughest games. None of them are at home. So that's why I have them as the last playoff team getting in. And I think they get in with two losses. So they next up is Oklahoma State at number three. Three of the last eight teams to make the college football playoff were ranked in the top 12 or lower. When I look at Oklahoma State... They have a schedule that doesn't feature what is considered an elite defense on their entire schedule. And when you're looking at the offense, this is the best offense maybe of the Mike Gundy era. And I'm including that 2011 team with Brandon Whedon because in Justice Hill, they have a guy that can house you at tailback that they didn't have on that team that lost to Iowa State that night. And if they hadn't lost to Iowa State that night, they'd have played Alabama for the national championship, not LSU. I'm sorry, they'd have played LSU for the national championship instead of the rematch with Alabama because they both would have been undefeated conference champions. So I, I like the way the schedule sets up for them too. I think Stoops' retirement opens the door for them as well. And I, and I think the stars are sort of aligning for them to be this year's Washington, to be this year's Oklahoma. Um, two teams the last two years that – we're well outside the top 10 in the preseason and still ended up making the playoffs. Number two, who you have playing against Oklahoma State in the college football playoff, Ohio State. Well, you got a record-setting senior quarterback that's got 30 conference or school records. You have a Hall of Fame coach and maybe the best defensive line returning in the sport. That usually means you're going to be pretty good, John. Now, for Ohio State, though, it's pretty much national championship or bust after what happened last year. And, and I don't know that you can beat Alabama if you don't have that Deshaun Watson, Johnny Manziel, Ezekiel Elliott transformative player. And I don't know that they have that. And you know what's weird about them? For how highly rated their recruiting classes are, who is the receiver on Ohio State's team that you're like, we got to right, put eight in that box? Right. Who, who's the running back that you're like, we got to put eight in the box to stop that? Guy? You know what I'm saying? Who is that guy? Do you know? I no. don't know. Well, I don't think not. I think Mike Weber's okay, but if Mike, like if Ezekiel Elliott played for Purdue, how much would, would Purdue win to be a seven or eight win team? Yeah, they would. If Mike Weber played for Purdue, would they be a seven or eight win team? No. If Carlos Hyde played for Purdue, would they be a bowl team? Probably. You see where I'm getting at here? I, I just don't. Now maybe guys they've recruited the last two years that we haven't heard about yet might become those guys this year. That's certainly possible. But it ain't like Alabama, who's, who I have number one. Alabama has five running backs that would start for every other team in college football, I believe. That's crazy what they have. I don't see that Ohio State has that kind of skill position talent where, where they have that extra d- difference maker. 
And I think JT Barrett can be that difference maker if you give him a weapon or two, like he was his redshirt freshman year, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, when he burst on the scene, especially with Kevin Wilson there calling the plays. I mean, Kevin Wilson's going to put him in position to score a lot of points. But, you know, last year their best skill player was Curtis Samuel, who didn't really have a position. So there you go. And number one, same as it ever was, Alabama. And you know I hate picking chalk, but I think it's the most talented offense of the Saban era. This might be the deepest running back position I've seen in my lifetime. You know, so um, the one concern I have, though, they've had a big talent drain of coaches the last couple of years, including four this offseason. They're on their third offensive coordinator, and they're going to go into Florida State in the season opener with their third offensive coordinator in the last five games or four games. You know, so we'll see. Brian Dayball, who comes in, is a it comes from the Patriots, more of a pro style guy. Well, Jalen Hurts and Tua Tagliavoa, who the other kid, I think that's how the other kid's name is pronounced. Neither one of those guys are pro style quarterbacks. So I do wonder about that. But you know what, man? You and I come from the era of uh, Ole and Arn Anderson, Tolly Blanchard, and the great prophet Rick Fair, Flair, the Four Horsemen. And what it and and what is one of the life lessons that Ric Flair taught us back in the day, John? I mean, seriously, I I can't remember a whole lot of things my dad taught me, but I can remember what Ric Flair taught me, and that is to be the man. You got to beat the man. Someone's got to beat the man. And if you look at when you who's beating the man, when Ohio State had Ezekiel Elliott running like Barry frickin' Sanders, and Emmett Smith rolled into one package, and when and and Deshaun Watson playing out of his flipping mind okay playing like charlie ward in troy aikman's body okay so that's who's beaten alabama and when johnny manzel could win the heisman as a freshman that's who has beaten alabama and so i I, when i look down the list of teams who whose overall talent level is on par with them florida state um, Ohio State. I don't think Oklahoma State's overall talent level is on par with them, but I think the schedule sets up well for them. But when I look at teams whose talent level is on par with Alabama, I don't see any of them have that one guy, though. Do you? I don't. They're pretty good. No doubt yeah. about it. And uh, we know how they've been recruiting. They've been recruiting at a level that we just haven't seen. You yeah. know me. If there was a smart way I oh, could sure. not pick yeah. Alabama yeah. so I could give the contrarian opinion and be right in four months, I would do it. I just couldn't come up with it. No. You gotta be you gotta be true to what you see. Um, last thing, since we didn't really talk a whole lot of Iowa and they were not in your top twenty-five, and we'll go to your conference predictions next week. Um, I'm sure you saw this. Iowa landed a graduate transfer running back last week on Independence Day, named James Butler from Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, He's rushed for over 1,300 yards in each of the last two seasons. He graduated in three years, by the way. Played as a true freshman. Um, the guy could actually, I think, probably redshirt. Uh, still has that year. But he didn't transfer to redshirt. He has 608 carries in three years. 3,316 yards in three years. And if you were looking at those numbers in Iowa history... That would be the fourth most carries, 608 would be the fourth most carries ever for an Iowa running back. And the, the yards, the, the 3,316 yards would rank third 
in Iowa history. Um, I saw Pro Football Focus tweet something out. The the running back returning in in college football this year with the most total missed tackles forced of all returning FBS running backs. James Butler is at the top of the list. Uh, most yards rushing since 2015 by returning players. Justin Jackson of Northwestern um, is up there. Butler is third. This is a very productive guy who didn't do it in the Big Ten, but I mm-hmm. watched some of his film. He's got some good shake. North-South can run between the tackles. I mean, this is a heck of a summer pickup for the Iowa football program. It's really going to do a lot of running, I think, this coming year. I agree. And, you know, I said earlier about um, Northwestern, I see them as a team that's going to be in a lot of those 21, 20, 17, 24, 21, 28, 24 kind of games. Um, and I like the way their offensive backfield sets up to win those kinds of games. For Iowa, which I would, I would rank them, I, I think Northwestern has a team that can challenge for the West in a schedule that is favorable. I think Iowa, talent-wise, is pretty even with Northwestern. The schedule is not nearly as favorable, but I, I that with but so I, well, I think Northwestern's margin of error is between eight to ten wins. I, you know, I would have told you a week ago. I think Iowa's margin is between five and seven wins. I think this could potentially take you from that to six to eight, because I think it's insurance for Akram Wadley, number one. If I the, the person who ought to be the most excited about this is Akram Wadley, because um, I, I, I the NFL is looking for guys with the most amount of explosiveness with the least amount of tread on their tires. Okay, that's one of the reasons why I didn't see Leonard Fournette get penalized for sitting out games. He was he didn't have any, and he doesn't have a lot of tread on his tires. So Wadley was looking at being a 25, 28 carry a game guy. Um, he's not going to have to do that now. So that's a positive. Also, it, it frees Iowa up to put Wadley more out, out on the outside in the passing game where we saw him become a real weapon last year after I called for it for three weeks on the podcast. They finally did it. And 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 you won't sacrifice a downhill runner, which is really Iowa's base offense. You know, that guy, that one-cut runner in the zone scheme, you still have that, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, now, for Butler, does that that's his name, correct? It is Butler? Yes, James Butler. For James Butler, this is a risky proposition, though, and here's why. Because if you go to Iowa and and you don't flash with arguably the best run-blocking offensive line, we know they don't necessarily protect the quarterback that great, but, but so so if you're not a great pass-blocking line, but you're winning offensive the Joe Moore Award for Offensive Line of the Year, you know what that means? It means in the running game, when people watch the All-22, you're just grading people. Like, you're a freaking combine rolling down the tracks because if you're giving up that kind of pressure on, on on the passing game but you're still winning the joe moore award it means in the running game you're just depleting people so for the you know you got that line that, that that almost that entire line is back so if you're butler and i'm going to this school where i'm going to run a pro style offense behind arguably the best run blocking offensive line in the country if if i can't and, and i've got akram wadley for protection so defenses can't key on me um, if I don't flash, that really hurts my stock going into the NFL draft. So if, if, I think it's a great it's a great play for Iowa and a great play for Wadley in terms of preserving him. But I think it's a pretty risky move for Butler. Um, and 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 I give the kid a lot of credit. He's gambling on his talent, and I hope it works out for him. 
Yeah, especially considering that he's already got 608 carries on those legs. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a high number of carries. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly on all the things you said. That'll do it. This is an all-time record long for a single podcast. Uh, not that we haven't recorded multiple on one night before, but this is certainly the largest one, we've, the longest one we've ever done in one. So thank you, as always, for listening. For Steve, I'm John. Talk to you next week.